or grab a book and head to bed early and uh, read, uh, you know, my favorite author or whatever, I know what you're thinking. I was a party animal in high school. You can tell. But, you know, in my mind, marriage just wasn't for me. I wasn't, wasn't going to do it. Fine being alone. And I guess in a lot of ways uh, that um, I sort of resonated with that uh, weird fairy tale called Shrek. Do you remember the ogre named Shrek? It's not exactly a, a Disney sort of fairy tale prince, but I can understand where he's coming from. He just wanted to be left alone in his swamp. Until one day a character named Donkey came along and uh, started causing all kinds of trouble. He followed him along and uh, started uh, singing to him. Shrek said, why are you following me? And Donkey said, you know, he sang this song about he's all alone and you got to have friends, you know. And, and so then Shrek replies, stop singing. It's no wonder you don't have any friends. But Donkey, ever optimistic and very persistent, says, wow, only a true friend would be that truly honest. And he just won't leave him alone, and Shrek is so annoyed, and I get it. Being alone seems safer. Have you ever felt that way? And I begin to wonder if the first human felt that way in the beginning. We've been looking at the book of Genesis, the first few chapters over the last couple of weeks, and if you brought a Bible with you, we're going to look at Genesis 2 this morning, but... We've been looking at this magical story, this, this creational setting where God is creating all of these things. And we looked uh, at the, the setting of the story a couple weeks ago, last uh, two weeks ago. We saw the, the worth of the human characters. We saw the work that God has gifted to them last week. But in the analysis of all of this, I wonder how Adam felt in the garden. He's not exactly an ogre in the swamp, but he is alone. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 Here's how the story picks up. It says, The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Remember, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have a couple of different creation accounts coming at this from different angles. Genesis 1, we have this God is ordering the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, and he's putting it in order. And in Genesis 2, God is now ordering not the whole cosmos, he's ordering the dry land. And he's placing within it and building kind of the center of the cosmos, this garden, this, this beautiful, wonderful, good place called Eden. And he takes this man, apparently creates him outside of the garden, and he puts him in the garden. He literally Noah's him in the garden. That's Noah's name as a verb. He rests him in the garden, and he creates order with his grace. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And I think about that man in that garden. Surely he must have been happy. I mean, what reason would he not have to be happy? He was king of the castle. He had abundant food. He'd from any of the trees except the one. He had uh, satisfying work. He had a beautiful slice of real estate. He walked with God. It was good. It was good, except something wasn't quite right. And maybe you've experienced that. I know I have when I... Uh, left high school for college. I, I think I felt the same way. I was going to a good school. I was excited about it. You know, Lincoln Christian College, I'd be on my own. No more parental oppression. You know, I'd be on my own in life. And I was going to go there. I was going to be king of the dorms. I was going to have plentiful food in the cafeteria. I was going to have satisfying schoolwork. I'd walk with God. Lincoln became my Eden. <laughs> it was good. It wasn't quite right. 
I think I always remember that moment when my parents dropped me off at college for the first time. Did you have a moment like that? Maybe, maybe it wasn't a college campus for you. Maybe it was a military base or another city or an apartment or something like that. But I remember, you know, we, we got everything unpacked in the college dorm and uh, we, we got everything set up. We went out to eat uh, and then we were getting ready to, they were getting ready to leave. And so after we ate and we talked and all these kinds of things, it was time for goodbyes. And my parents tried to say goodbye and I was, uh, I was trying to be strong, you know, I had kind of a lump in my throat. My mom was trying to be strong, no tears. My dad was trying to start the car to get out of there, I think. And and then they left. And this sort of overwhelming sense of aloneness kind of filtered onto me for the first time in my life. No family around, no longtime friends, nobody really knew me. And it didn't feel very good. And that was God's evaluation as he looked upon his own garden, this lone human in the garden. He sees he's alone and it's not good, right? In the middle of this story with the refrain of chapter 1 still echoing in our ears, seven times in chapter 1, God says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good, right in the middle. Surprisingly, verse 18 of chapter 2, Genesis, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, the phrase not good. The Hebrew phrase uh, lo tov is highly emphatic. The usual Hebrew way of saying it would have been hen tov. This is lacking in goodness, but this is bigger than that. This is emphatic. This is like God stopping the presses. This is not time for a minor tweak in creation. It's time for a major overhaul. Aloneness. It's not good. And still not. Even though it pervades our world today, I wonder if you're feeling that, especially in a pandemic and isolation and social structures that are strained. I know the people in Tokyo, Japan certainly have felt loneliness. Over the last three years, a fellow by the name of Shoji Morimoto has addressed the loneliness of his city since 2018. Uh, This 37-year-old fellow Uh, decided to put out an advertisement to rent himself out to other people to, quote, do nothing. He says that sometimes he'll eat or drink or give simple feedback, but nothing more. And people have rented him out. There are some who have brought him to restaurants to have someone to talk to, or they'll bring him along to a hard hospital visit maybe, or they'll rent him to play video games with. One person uh, rented him to accompany those filing for divorce. He's listened to healthcare workers, uh, just overwhelmed and exhausted, listened to them. Sometimes he's simply brought in uh, into someone's presence to sit in silence. Now, he charges for his time about $100, but even with the price tag, in the last three years, he's had over 3,000 requests. He does nothing. He doesn't offer support or encouragement or challenge or anything. He's simply there and people can't get enough. Have you felt alone? Especially during a pandemic. God God looks in his garden and he sees this lone human and he says it's not good. But God cares about this. So verse 18 God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Uh, the term helper is the Hebrew term azer, and it's um, used throughout the Hebrew Bible. John Walton describes the term as someone who comes to the aid of or provides a service for someone. It's a good definition, but let's be reminded this is not renting someone to do nothing. This is a much bigger term. In the Old Testament, this azer was someone who helped their neighbors in Isaiah 41, or they helped political alliances in Ezra chapter 10, or they helped in military reinforcements in Joshua chapter 10. But 16 of its 19 uses in the Old Testament, almost all of its uses, it refers to God himself. The idea is of a deliverer, someone who delivers you from danger, someone who delivers you from a less than ideal circumstance. Helper may sound like too weak of a word for this. The human needs more. Plus, the the Hebrew term here translated suitable, a helper suitable for him, uh, konegdo, at at its root it means in front of or opposite you. It's a picture of someone facing you, someone mirroring you, someone who is corresponding to you. I think counterpart might be a good translation. A delivering counterpart is what this human being needs. And so God creates a new being in his creation. And I think to myself, well, wait a minute. Why? The man has God. Isn't that enough? Why can't God be the helper? And honestly, I think our Christian faith, so many times that's kind of the thing that we talk about when we think about our Christian faith. It's just me and God. You know, you get up in the morning, maybe, and you have a morning devotion, you read the scriptures, just me and God. You get into a prayer closet alone where it's just me and God. You don't really need anybody else, it's just me and God. But listen, be careful with that kind of talk. Because while on the one hand there's truth there, we do want personal relationships with God, when it's overbalanced, it becomes kind of a deadly thought. We don't need anybody else. Walter Brueggemann points out here in this passage, this very statement of God and his next act shows that God does not intend to be the man's exclusive helper in life. God is helper, but the help the man needs and must have is to be found among the earthlings. So then we have this interesting quest in the story, verse 19. What you would expect is that God would then form, you know, the man's helper. But instead, what you get is this. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper. There's that language again. No azer corresponding to him was found. Boy, this just invites the imagination in the story. Have you ever tried to imagine the scene? You know, God coming to Adam and saying, okay, Adam, what do you, what do you think about this one? And Adam looks at it and he says, I think that's a giraffe. A giraffe? Where did you come up with that sort of language? I, do you think this can be a suitable helper for you, Adam? Uh, no. No way. Okay, okay, okay. God brings to him, okay. Um, all right, well, what about this one? Do you think this can be your azer, uh, Adam? No, no. That's a, a coxswain's double-eyed fig parrot. All righty, Adam, I think we need to call it a day. I think you're getting a little tired. Oh, what, what is going on with the story? What, what's happening here? Well, I think, I think this starts to show a divine, a, a divine pattern in the creation story that we begin to see something interesting here. This story is followed later by a story. The very next uh, story in the Hebrew Bible in Genesis 6 through 9 that tells about humans 
who are at peace with animals and who are in a safe place is when Noah is on the ark. And in that story, especially in Genesis 7, Noah is to uh, bring upon the ark uh, animals in pairs. And the, the scriptures, it's often translated, uh, he was to bring a male and its mate. An ish and an isha is the Hebrew language. A man and a woman of each of these animals onto the ark. Those are the same words that Adam will use. We'll see here in a moment in verse 23. Ish and isha. So it kind of gives the picture that while Noah is, or why Adam rather, is naming the animals even in this early scene, and while he's bringing them to him, they're coming as Ish and Isha, as male and woman, male and female, and each animal has its pair. Each one has one corresponding to him. And so now maybe, Adam, this becomes kind of an educational experience for him. He's seeing time and again these animals coming to, to him in pairs, and he's coming to realize that he alone doesn't fully reflect the image of God. Remember Genesis chapter 1 when it talks about humanity and that creation account? It says it this way. God created mankind, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Gendered humans in relationship with each other. There is something missing then for this lone person in the Genesis 2 account. So over and over it goes. Creatures come before him. He names them, but not one was a suitable helper. So the story says, verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, a tardema in Hebrew. It's not the normal word for sleep. It's used half a dozen times in the Old Testament to describe this kind of divine stupor, a, a hypnotic trance where God will do for this person what this person cannot do for themselves. And while he was sleeping... God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Literally, it says, God took one from his sides, is the Hebrew phrase. We often translate that. Most translations talk about his rib. One from his sides. But really, that's not the term for rib. It's a word. It's an architectural word that was used to describe the side of a building, in um, Exodus, it describes the side of a tabernacle, the holy tent of God. Or in uh, uh, the book of Ezekiel or 1 Kings, it describes the sides of the temple, this building of God. Or in Samuel, it describes the side of a hill. And so you, could, you can extrapolate, okay, you took from the man's side a rib, of course, but, but in Hebrew thinking in, in, in the ancient Near East, what would a human being have? How many sides would they have? Well, they'd have two. They'd have a right side and a left side. God took one of them. Talk about a better half. And then God creates this other being, this woman. Now there's one who mirrors him. There is one who corresponds to him. This azer can help deliver him from loneliness and fruitlessness. Remember God's commission in the chapter 1 was be fruitful and multiply. And that takes more than one. You need two genders to make that happen. And so God creates woman. Now, why didn't he just give her woman in the beginning? Why wasn't this a, a, a pair from the very beginning of the Genesis 2 account? What is God up to? Why go through this animal naming? Is this a joke? Is God testing him? Does God really believe that animal, that, that dogs can be a human's best friend? That's our dog. That basket behind it is about this big. That'll tell you how big of a dog we have. Can the dog be man's best friend? Not currently. Um, 
why is God doing this in the story? Maybe it's because God wanted Adam to realize it's not good to be alone. Maybe instead of squandering his most precious gift on one who is unaware, he wants him to realize the gift of companionship. And that's something I've had to learn in my life. Even up in that Burger King in Lincoln, Illinois, my parents had left a a loneliness sort of draped over my shoulders for the first time in my life that I can remember being alone wasn't a good experience. And then a girl and her mother walked into that Burger King and they seemed to be kind of going through the same process of saying goodbye that I had just gone through with my parents. They seemed to be handling it a little bit better than us. And I remember um, that I knew, uh, knew of them a little bit. They grew up in a town uh, not far from my town growing up. I at least knew their name. The mother's name was Joanne. The girl's name was Jody Jennings. And suddenly I began to realize that being alone wasn't exactly the friend I thought it would be. I thought she should be the friend for me. I guess what I started to realize in college was that, you know, turning on a ball game, listening to commentators, it's a kind of relationship, but it's not enough. Or grabbing a good book and listening to the inner conversation and dialogue of an author, it's, it's a kind of relationship, but it's not enough. Being in relationship with other human beings is key. It's taken God a long time to get that through to me, I think, but maybe he's trying to get that through to you too. Because here's the truth. You know this. Relationships are rough. Boy, they strain us. And they cause such division. Sometimes they are unhealthy. Sometimes they are rushed. Sometimes they are hard to find. Sometimes they just don't work out. But in this story, our story, God creates human companionship of equal but different people. And it's a gift. It's interesting to me that that this story about the creation of woman is unique among all the stories, the ancient stories of all the ancient peoples in their creation accounts. No other creation account has a full description of the creation of woman like the book of Genesis. Women aren't given this kind of attention anywhere else in all those cultures, but in this unique story, she is imperative. This human man is created and he is working and he's working with God, but it's not good until she is the answer. God alone is not the answer. An animal is not the answer. Being alone is not the answer. God's answer in his grace is the woman. Listen, ladies, creation isn't good enough without you. We need you. You are not lesser than. You don't have to act like other people. We need you to be who you are. We need your insight. We need your brilliance and your creativity. This story says we need you. We need each other. I don't know. In some ways, I was as surprised by a relationship with Jody as many people are in the fairy tales. I think probably because I'm certainly not a romantic my first date with Jody, I invited her to come with me to a high school football game in the November cold in the big town of Clinton, Illinois, about three weeks after she had suffered through scarlet fever. I'm no Casanova, okay? 
But then again, fairy tale romances are, I think, full of surprises. Snow White sleeps and is surprised when Prince Charming awakens her with a kiss. Or Cinderella meets her match under disguise at a ball. Or even the bungling ogre Shrek finds his Fiona by surprise. And I think this man, Adam, is no different. He wakes up from this sort of magical sleep, this surgical sleep to meet his match. And they experience something incredible, togetherness and no shame. Look at his response in verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. These are Adam's only recorded words before his fall. Not exactly Shakespeare, but he still quotes some poetry. He's captivated. He's surprised by this other being, this being who is equal now with him. And he identifies this as woman. In Hebrew, Hebrew isha is the word. Isha. And in so doing, he also identifies himself. She should be called Isha, and I'll be Ish. Woman and man is the idea. Now, throughout the whole story up to this point, the narrator has referred to this man as Adam, from the Hebrew term Adamah, or ground. Throughout the whole story, the man has been associated with the stuff of his creation. He is made from the dirt. He is dirt man. He's dirt dweller, or you ladies might prefer he is a dirt bag. I don't know. All the way up to this point, but now, at this point, Adam chooses to identify with this other, with this Isha. He now says, we're together, we correspond, we mirror, this relationship builds on who I am. We together are the image of God. And this identity is so central that the author even drops a little explanatory epilogue here, a moral of the story, if you will, verse 24 He says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, here's a mystery. This has been a mystery for all of creation, will probably be for all of our lives. God creates one to reflect his image, but it's not good. So he splits the one in half and makes two, and then says, you two become one. Okay. And that human relationship of male and female in relationship, this companionship together, that shows God. And the process continues. You two become one, and you will give birth to a biological one who will leave you two and go find another one, and those two will come together, and they will produce one, and on and on and on it goes. This multiplicity and unity shows the world God, who also is multiple, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet unified one. And that especially mirrors Him when it's healthy. And the author concludes in verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were so together, so open, so vulnerable, so trusting of each other. There was nothing to hide, so innocent, so naive. In a sense, they were like little kids in a really good relationship. It'll do that to you. You see, each of us, the story says, is a separate human being. But to be fully human is to be connected with others. This story offers one example of that, a marriage connected in covenant. In Genesis 4, we'll see another example of that, a child connected to uh, mother and father. More connections will come as the Hebrew story continues throughout the scriptures, kinship and neighbors and friendship and countrymen and all the rest. This story does not say you are less than human if you don't have a romantic relationship. It doesn't say that at all. But it does say we were meant as human beings to connect with one another. That is who we are.
And in large part, that's why I believe God has called together this Christ-following family. Because we need one another. And as long as we exist as a congregation, as a church, no one in this community should have to be alone. It was two whole years after I told God that I would never, ever get married. That I stood on a stage in a church in front of my friends and family and God and everyone, and I said to a woman, I do. And 25 plus years later, I still do. Jody is truly my better half. (laughs) You don't have to amen that. At the center of this story is a God who fashions goodness by focusing on companionship. It's not good to be alone. So let me just ask you the question. Do you have a companion in life? Do you have a friend? Do you have a confidant? Do you have someone that you can talk to and cry with and laugh with and experience life with, bounce ideas off of? Do you have someone you can call in a pinch or someone you call with good news? What secrets can you share with someone in your life? Who's who, who, when they come into your life, when they come into the room, do your eyes light up? If there's no one like that for you, listen, introduce yourself to someone here today. Start by saying hello. Open yourself up to the risk of relationships with other people because, as the great poet Smash Mouth said during Shrek's fairy tale, you'll never know if you don't go. You'll never shine if you don't glow. I don't know what that means, but here's my prayer for you. May God's face shine on you as you develop, as you nurture deep relationships with other people in Christ's name. Let me pray. Father, there's just no substitute for the people you've placed in our lives. Thank you for the gift of relationship, even when it's messy and hard and nasty. God, I pray for health, for our relationships in the room, whether that's marriage or friendship, whether that's unknown or undecided. I pray, God, you would open us up to being in each other's lives and in so doing reflect who you are and what you're doing in the world. I pray, God, mostly you'd help us to take the risk of being in relationship with one another and of finding you in the midst of it so that, Lord Jesus, we can look like you both now and forevermore as your brother and as image bearers of your Father. We thank you for all that you've given to us in Jesus' name. Amen.